Um, well, it's a privilege to be with you. Uh, I will, I'm just going to go through this in one minute so, you don't, so we can chat and you don't have, we don't have to talk about. Uh, this has kind of been an ongoing issue with me. Many of you know for about 15 years this uh, foot issue. Uh, I've seen uh, the best doctors in the country and I've seen they cannot really ultimately get it diagnosed. So um, all I do is I was thinking about that this morning is, is do we believe that God heals? Absolutely we believe that God heals. Do we believe that God heals every time? No. I mean, there are clear incidences in the Bible where God doesn't heal. And is that always a function of just a lack of faith? Some would argue that it is. I don't, I'm not so sure that's the case. Uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he prayed. He had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. We kind of talked about that at length. And he prayed three times, and it wasn't removed from him. And uh, God said, my power is perfected in weakness. And so when you think about that, conceptually, it's a really, it's a powerful thought to imagine that, in fact, God can work through your struggles to perfect you. I was talking to Tess as we were driving here this morning, and uh, her mom came early to help set up, and, and uh, we were in the car, and I said, well, what do you think about all this? And we were talking about it a little bit. Why might God, how would God perfect us in this way? And, um, and as we were talking about it, we both agreed that it kind of helps us not cling to this world you know it's things like this that help us not you know when everything's going so perfectly in here it's easy to follow fall in love with the world isn't it I mean it's a little bit easy and yet sometimes when we struggle we find ourselves paradoxically closest to the Lord so is it an act of love for God to occasionally not heal and allow I think so and uh, and yet I believe that the kingdom has come in power and that he heals people and we'll continue to pray and I'll continue to pray that I'll be healed and that you'll be healed and that we collectively are healed but I get a sense from the text that is, in fact, a little bit of both. Does that make sense? So if you're struggling in here with whatever it is, whether it's a physical issue or a relational issue, that sometimes God allows things to occur in our lives to maybe just give us a little bit of a desire for the taste of heaven. And uh, I'm appreciative of that this week. Um, I was thinking about this uh, a little story that I had heard. Uh, it was Billy Graham maybe 20 years ago telling this story. As we're, and I think I, th I thought it fit in with our little continuing look into the life of David. He was on an airplane. He, of course, as you know, he traveled millions of miles over, especially in the middle part of his ministry. This was a little bit towards the end of his ministry. And he was on an airplane once with a guy, and he had one of his assistants there with him. And they were seated next to a gentleman who was completely and utterly out of control, drunk, you know, slapping the waitress, uh, the steward, stewardesses on the rear ends and everything that could be done and just yelling and, and the whole plane was angry and upset and why haven't they removed this guy? And finally, the assistant to Billy Graham uh, reached over to this guy and he says, do you realize who you're sitting next to? And he said, no, I don't think I do. Who, who are you? And he goes, well, this is, the, this is the famous Billy Graham, the Reverend Billy Graham. And you're on the same plane, and you're really causing a disturbance. And he goes, really, where's Billy? And he looked around, and he just went over there, and he goes, Billy. And he stuck, boy, it sure is you. It's sure good to meet you, buddy. And then he just turned around, and he sat down, and he turned around to Billy, and he goes, and by the way, your sermons have really helped me in my life. <laughs> Billy, Billy Graham went on to say, I, 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 I think that maybe I've helped thousands of people in that way during my life, you know. But I thought that was a great story. Your sermons have really helped me in this life. Um, you know, it is true that we are, and I think this is what we're seeing with David, we are in many ways mixed, a mixed bag, aren't we? I mean, how many of us really live up to what we know? 
I mean, I know that I want to be like Jesus. I, I, the more I've studied Jesus over the last three decades and the more that I get into the text and the more I really experience him on a relational basis, the more I want to be like him, but also, paradoxically, the more I realize that I am that far away from his nature and the kindness and the, the self-sacrifice. I look at, the, at my own life and what I consider self-sacrificial relative to him. I mean, it's a joke. And uh, there are times when I go, will I ever even become even remotely close to being like you? And again, the closer you get, the further you realize you always were away. And uh, I think this is the case with David. As we look into this, grace emerges, as we can see, and forgiveness. And we're going to look at that today. But we're also going to look at some of the consequences of David's sin and yet the effects of him getting his joy back. So that's what I want to talk to you about today. Strangely enough, me being here, uh, sitting on, uh, being on these uh, little, whatever these things are, crutches, uh, I'm going to talk to you about joy. And I can tell you that I have had increased joy over this last week. I've just had an abundance of joy, even in the midst of trial. So I want to go back to Psalm 32. It's where we, I, where, you, where we left last week, and I want to revisit it a little bit, and then maybe just go a little bit into the prophets bringing it forward in the New Testament as well. Psalm chapter 32, verse 1 says, How blessed is the man or he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. We looked a little bit at that last week. Blessed, the blessedness, what does that mean? Joyful, content, happy. Uh, you, You just add it. Just joyful. How joyful is the man or the woman whose sins have been covered. We saw last week that if you really deep down, and I had a few people come to me afterwards and, and, they, and they said, you know what, there were, you know, I always knew my sins were covered, but there was always a sense in, of foreboding because deep down I realized there were a few of the sins in my life that I kind of thought, well, those, are, those I'm going to stand trial for one day because they were so reprehensible. And yet I saw in David's life last week that uh, mine didn't ri- even rise to the level of his murder and adultery and cover up all in one moment. He goes on to say, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You know, I want you now, if you will, go, to, go forward to Romans chapter 3, or back or forward, I should say. Romans chapter 3, and I want to look here quickly at something powerful in this. And I hope you get this this morning. I really hope you do, because now we can see that David is in the line of the prophets He's going through a horrific moment, and yet what he's doing, whether he is clearly aware of it or not, he is prophesying the cross. He is looking forward some 1,000 years into the future and seeing the sacrifice of the God-man himself. As we can see here in Romans 3, verse 21, it says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, what does that mean? Well, the law of righteousness was through the law, and yet now there was a new covenant that was going to be made that they had all prophesied. We've talked about that extensively, and it was witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, think about what he's saying. He said the law and the prophets. So the law was prophesying of the coming of this covering of sin. Not only did it give a momentary covering, an annual covering through the Day of Atonement, through that one day that the, na- the sins of the nation would be forgiven, but it was going to come an ultimate day of atonement. And he goes on in 22 to say, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. 
Okay, so that's, that's what the law and the prophets were seeing. They were looking forward and seeing the covering of sin by Jesus in the future, and both the law and the prophets were witnessing that. In all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Now I want you to go forward to chapter 4, and then let's see, and you can see his line of thinking here. David is one of, this, one of these prophets. How so? Well, believe it or not, it's in the context of the very issue of which we're looking. It's David and Bathsheba. Verse 6 says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. In other words, now what does that mean? It sounds like a lot of Christianese there, but let's get this deep down in our soul here. What he's saying is that righteousness has come as David had seen. Now, this is what Paul is saying to the Romans. As David saw a thousand years ago, righteousness was going to come and it didn't have anything to do with what you do. You got to get that down in your souls. It doesn't have anything to do with what you do, your works. It has to do with your faith, your response to this message, but it doesn't have anything to do with you. And then paradoxically and strangely enough, he goes and he refers referentially to Psalm 32, which was written in the context of David having been confronted about his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah and then the meager efforts to cover it up. He says, this is what David said, verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And then he goes on to say, and in fact, we know this because that God made Abraham, Abraham became righteous through his faith, the Bible says, even in the Old Testament, even 500 years before the law came. So are you made righteous? Are you made cool with God? We'll put it that way. Are you okay with God based on your faith? The answer down through the centuries, not just starting with the New Testament church, but all the way back to the time of David. No, all the way back to the time of Abraham. No, even all the way back to the garden. God's been screaming forth that I'm going to make you righteous by what I do for you. You just must believe into it. Now, the question is, did David believe into it? Yes, he did. But was he a failure? In this case, he was. And in this case, in appropriating this particular Psalm 32, this prayer, what he doesn't know maybe is that he's prophesying of the ultimate one one day who would come and cover the sins, not only of him or of Israel or of his family, but of the entire world, including the Gentiles, which is a real strange thing for their ears because this was the fact. They saw this as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yet many of the prophets said, no, one day he's going to sprinkle the nations as we see in Isaiah 53, sprinkle the nations. So this is the story. It's important to see. And now what I want to look here too. now, going back to Psalm 32, we looked at this briefly, and we do want to look at some of the consequences. Again, we briefly touched this last week. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. My vitality was drained away as with a fever heat of, heat of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions. For you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Now, again, we see, look, I know that I'm struggling here. I know that there are profound consequences in this. And I will suffer these consequences of sin. Sin is not without consequence, even if you're forgiven. Do, you do understand. That's an important thing to see. Sin is not without consequence, even though you are forgiven. Many of us in here this morning, all, probably all of us, are suffering the effects of sin in our lives. Aren't we? 
that we may have committed years ago that may have irreparably damaged the course of our life in some ways. It may have reduced our job opportunities. It may have cost us a family that will never be uh, maybe brought back together again. It may, cost us, may have cost us financially and we'll never be able to maybe give generously to the kingdom of God like we would have liked, but it was for our greed years ago that maybe cost us and maybe cost us a lawsuit or something that we, some act that we're still struggling from, but it's important to know, are those sins covered? This is, we have to make the distinction between the vertical, our relationship with God, and then the horizontal. God does like to mitigate the effects of the horizontal, and he loves to come in and repair and restore and, and give new life, and he will, but sometimes some things are just irreparable. And that's just part of our consequences of sin. I want you to go forward to Psalm 51 now. I briefly alluded to this last week, but this is, again, a psalm that David wrote having been confronted by Nathan the prophet. He was confronted with his own sin, and this is his response is writing the psalm. And boy, is it instructive for us. We're going to learn a lot from this this morning. Verse 1, Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Okay, first of all, it's important. Lord, would you reach down based on your faithfulness, your loving kindness, your your greatness of compassion. Lord, I am calling on all of your love attributes because I don't deserve them. I know I don't deserve them. I'm looking just for mercy. Cleanse me from my sin. Excuse me. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You know, Paul picks up on this refrain in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13, 14. He says, the blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience. Again, the blood of Jesus. But you see here, again, isn't David prophetically looking into the future by talking about the cleansing of his iniquity? He's looking forward a thousand years to the cross. And then Paul again, the apostle Paul picks it up in the New Testament and says it is Jesus, it is his blood that cleanses our conscience from all these dead works, from all this nonsense that we've participated in. He said, against you, you only I have sinned and done what's evil in your sight. This is important to see because he's making this between he and God. It's not just about his, it's not just about those folks he's sinned against. Do you see that? He's making this, this is between you and me, God, and that's where we finished it out in our story. And the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. See, he knew this is between you and me, and I know this is my issue, and it's between us. He said, he goes, I've done what's evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. In other words, do you do realize that God is completely and utterly justified? I meet people all the time who I run into who say, well, I don't really feel that accountable, or I really feel good before God. And then of course, Paul just dismantles this in Romans chapter 2. He says, if you've ever condemned anybody else of something and you've done the same thing, you've already, you're self-condemned because in that you judge them, you've already judged yourself. So if even one time you say, forget God for a minute and that he's the judge and he's justified, have you, you may be self-convicted. Paul says we're all self-convicted. There's none of us in here that haven't committed some sin that we've condemned somebody else for that amazing? We see that certainly in the political process, don't we? I mean, you're just like, are you kidding me? How can you condemn them when you yourself are so guilty of the same thing? I mean, it's just this who can yell louder kind of a mentality, isn't it? It really is ridiculous. But 
Clearly, God's justified and blameless when you judge. I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. He does recognize that this is something that he inherited. This is a kind of sin that's argued a lot. A lot of people think, no, you're born uh, and you're perfectly righteous. No, you're born with a sin nature. And if you've had kids, you know that as precious as they are, they have a predisposition towards a direction that is not other-serving, if that's how you qualify righteousness. It says, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Again, now he uses this word purify, cleanse, purify me with hyssop, and I'll be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Notice, who's doing the cleansing? Who's doing the washing? Who's doing the forgiving? It's God. And I'm doing it based on your faithfulness, your compassion. And then this is instructive for the rest of the morning. Make me hear joy and gladness again. I, Lord, I can't, I can't feel it. I have no joy. I come in here, I'm, I feel dead spiritually. There's no gladness in my heart. Let the bones which you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And then many of you will know this well. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence and don't take the Holy Spirit away from me. Now, verse 12, this is cool. Catch this. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Do you ever remember, if you haven't had an experience where you came to the Lord and you've never experienced an overwhelming amount of joy, then you need to revisit a little bit. I mean, it's important that you do that. You need to revisit just a little bit about your experience because let me tell you something a born-again experience is exuberant experience being baptized into Jesus and feeling the the overwhelming emotion that comes from knowing you've been forgiven he's saying I want that feel again I got to get my joy back here and I'm asking you to sustain me with a willing spirit what happens when you get your joy back when you're restored catch the second part of this then I will teach what? Transgresses your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Have you had a place in your life where you say, I don't know that I've really had that much of an impact on other people in my life? You, I, would, I tell folks all the time, I disciple men all the time. I tell them, you cannot give out what you do not possess. Let me say that again. You cannot give out. If you've not been restored in your spirit... You will never have an impact, impact on others around you that are desperate like this valley. Do you know how many people are up and down Highway 111 in this valley that are just so desperate for joy? They're looking for just one more beautiful $150 you know, dollar dinner and you know, maybe the newest car and maybe move once again and move up in the world like the George, you know, like Jefferson, you know, moving on up, you know, into the sky, into that apartment in the sky, you know, everything's just got to keep moving on up to satisfy that next need somehow, that mirage that's there. Then I'll be happy. Then I'll be happy. Up and down the corridor of 111 in this valley, it's over and over. People are so desperate for joy. How are you going to give it to them? How are we as a church going to give it to them? We too must recognize the fullness of our own restoration. You restore me and then I will. It's an if-then statement like those old computer programs, programmers in the early days. If, and then you fill it in, then. It must proceed. You must be transformed and you must have the joy of the Lord. Your joy must be restored. How is this? You come to someone on the streets, hey, brother, would you like to embrace Jesus as your Messiah? 
Well, yeah, do you have him? Oh, yes, I have a very deep and personal relationship with him. I mean, come on, man. I mean, this has got to be something that's so profound. It's got to be so deep. It's got to be emanating from our spirit. You know, one of the greatest compliments I ever get about you as a church when I hear, and I ask people all the time, especially their first time or two, what is it that attracts you to church at the Red Door, or what would you like to see changed? I, I love to ask those questions, and almost without Without fail, it is, it is such a loving church. I hope that you've experienced that. And if you're here this morning, you haven't. You know, I, I'm, it's, I, I beg your apologies because we, I want people to walk in and sense joy. I mean just joy, jumping off of people. People are going to be moved by that. And then he goes on to say in verse 14, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Again, you see this, if I can get this down in my soul, Lord, if you will forgive me. See, he was begging for forgiveness. We don't have to plead for forgiveness. We go to God and said, no, Lord, I know I have your forgiveness through Jesus. He says, oh, Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. So you can see if I'm restored, I'm going to go to others and they're going to be impacted. If I'm delivered, I'm going to be a man or a woman who sings your praises. Now, that can mean, mean literally singing in worship, or that can just be you talking about Jesus. I can't stand being around her. All she tends to do is talk about Jesus. Well, there needs to be balance in that, but there needs to be people that know that, well, he's a Jesus guy. And whatever they may categorize you as, you need to recognize, people need to recognize in you that you have the joy of your salvation and let them be attracted to it. Let them be drawn to it. Now, when you think about the consequences of sin, they are profound. Would you agree with that? I mean, there is a physical and emotional toll, toll that take, is taken when you lose your joy. In fact, I was looking at this article this week. It was just the effects of depression on your body. And you can see from Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 that he was struggling, obviously, with great depression at this point. He recognized the, the grandeur of his uh, fall here. Uh, grandeur is maybe not the right word, but the the profundity of his fall, powerful fall that he had had. Here's the king of Israel, supposed to be a paragon of righteousness, and here he is. And you could see, you could, you know, my vitality's been drained from me. I, you know, I'm, you know, my, it's the night sweats, I can imagine. I can't sleep. I mean, this is awful. Well, 20%, 20, 26% of adults uh, in the U.S. today said depression is, is actually part of their lives, and they call it a mental disorder. It is a mental disorder. It comes from often sin. It comes from us having something that we wanted, maybe an idol, and we can't get it, and we become depressed. A lot of people come to become depressed when they're not able to satisfy what they think will make them satisfied, and they become depressed. Uh, you can have feelings of sadness, uh, insomnia, preoccupation with death, trouble with memory, risk of heart attack, feelings of clinginess, constricted blood vessels even, physiological impacts, inflammation. They've done research that says inflammation in someone's body very often can be a function of depression, and they don't really understand why. Inflammation causes pain so often. Weight fluctuations, fatigue, weakened immune system, lower interest in sex. I mean, it just goes on, just normal parts of life. Overwhelming sadness and grief and a sense of guilt. A sense of guilt? Or guilt, you know? I mean, that's one of the things, you know, a sense of guilt. You know, that's how the medical world puts it. You may have a sense of guilt. No, you may be guilty. But we have, we have an answer to that. And he accomplished on the cross for us 2,000 years ago our antidote to that. 
irritability, anger, loss of interest, things that used to bring us pleasure can cause headaches, chronic body aches, pain that doesn't respond to medication, depression, stress, just goes on. You know, when I look at these things, I say, that's where David was. What? How did he get his joy back? He needed a taste of the forgiveness of a loving creator. And you can see it in his words. And he did. And for the most part, he got his joy back. He suffered the consequences of sin till the very end. But I would say he got his joy back. What would hold you back from eating of this repentance today? If you do have that, maybe on live stream. If you've got something that's been nagging at you, if you feel such a lack of joy, and we're going to look at some of the effects when you get your joy back in a minute, but if you've lost your joy, what would hold you back from going and praying through Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 every day, 10 times a day, until you get it down in your soul? What would hold you back from that? You know, the psalmist also said, taste and see that the Lord is good. We say, I just can't. I've been depressed for so long. I've been discouraged for so long. I've tried the religious thing. I don't know. I just, I can't get my joy back as much as I've tried. Have you tried this? I'm talking about a deep sense of repentance. I'm talking about living in the scriptures, being a word person, living in the text and worship. Notice all these. You transform me. I start to believe in that and I'm going to start worshiping. And you see this snowball effect of worship and praise and adoration that come once you feel released and then joy begins to come back. I've got to tell you, when I start to struggle, and I do. I mean, everybody's the same. We all struggle with highs and lows in life. Some are a little bit more steady, but we all have days where we go, I just don't know if I want to put one foot in front of the other, or can in my case. And it can be discouraging. I turn on worship music. I've told you that before. We need to be a worshiping people, not just here on Sunday morning with three or four songs. I'm talking about a worshipful people in your car, on the way to work, on the way to church, listen to worship, be a worshiper, be a worshiper. But you say, ah, you know, I don't know. Well, taste and see. I, this is a great clip. I love Will Ferrell. Sorry, he has some kind of nasty movies out there, but he is a funny guy. Uh, this is a great little clip uh, where he's, a, he's an IRS agent and he refuses, he refuses to uh, taste the cookies. So let's taste and see. Well, good night. You want a cookie? Oh, no. Come on. They're warm and gooey. They're fresh out of the oven. No, I don't like cookies. You don't like cookies? What's wrong with you? I don't know. Everybody likes cookies. No, I know. I mean, after a really awful, no good day, didn't your mama ever make you milk and cookies? No. My mother didn't bake. The only cookies I ever had were store-bought. Okay. Sit down. No, I'm... No. Sit down. Now. Eat a cookie. I really can't. Mr. Crick, it was a really awful day. I know. I made sure of it. So pick up the cookie, dip it in the milk, and eat it.
Mm. Wow. That's a really, really good cookie. Look, sometimes you just have to taste and see. I don't like that. I tried that. I tried religion. I tried, no, no, just taste and see what David is eating of here. This is how he gets his joy back. You know, when I think about this a lot, I, I, I realize how many times I know or I, I read in Scripture and I just am simply sometimes unwilling to do it. If you're struggling with depression, if you're struggling with a lack of joy, maybe it's not some profound sin, but maybe it's just you just lost your groove. You know what I mean? You just feel like it's just you barely got here today or you barely turned on live stream or you just came across it on YouTube or whatever and you just say, I don't know, I don't like cookies. I tried that, but, but taste and see that the Lord is good. It always starts with the, uh, with the unrelenting God. Now, the big question for us next is, where does this joy come from? I want you to go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. This is a critical point. Sounds like a, just kind of a nice little start here. It says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed, that word in the Greek is makarios, which means well-off, blessed, joyful, happy, God with which I am, have been entrusted. What? According to the blessed gospel, no, 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 according to the glorious gospel of the blessed, it's not just the glory, it's not just the, the makarios of the gospel, it's the makarios or the joy of God. God in himself is joyful. Did you realize that God in the, in the Godhead, in terms of the Trinity, they were perfectly and completely joyful in and among themselves. They didn't need creation to be joyful. They are not dependent beings. We become very dependent. We were created to be dependent. God is joy. God's happy. You know, a lot of people look at the Bible and they go, God's just ticked off at everybody. That's why I don't want to be around him. I'd rather be among my friends, even though I know they're mis uh, the island of misfit toys. I got to tell you, I mean, I realize that, but at least they know how to party a little bit, and at least we can have some fun and excitement. God's a, uh, the cosmic killjoy. Maybe you've heard that. A cosmic killjoy. Is he or is he in his very nature joy? Well, according to Paul's letter to Timothy here, he said it's the blessed God. It is the joyful God. So you got to realize when you get your joy back, it's not really your joy, it's God's joy that he puts in you. It's not just some kind of psycho psychological effect. If you get joy, as we see in the fruits of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is joy. It's God's joy that he wants to put into you. But you must begin to see reality as he sees reality. And we'll see that in a minute as well. God wants to put his joy in you, not just have you do something that's going to have some psychological effect that all of a sudden you're going to wake up and go, okay, now I, now I see things differently. No, he wants to put his joy via the Holy Spirit on the inside of you. You know, when the nation, when they were rebuilding the wall at the conclusion, Ezra came in, this is in the book of Nehemiah, uh, after uh, the, the deconstruction through the Babylonian captivity. And so they came in and they had attempted to rebuild the, the temple and it wasn't near as grand as it was before. And, 
but they did build a wall around it. And then Ezra came up and began to read the law. And as he read the law, they began to weep and mourn. They mourned over their sin. Can I just tell you right now, that's, some, that's one thing that I think the church in the West, especially sometimes the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel message, doesn't ever get. It is good to weep and mourn and be in a place of great depression about your sin. Mourning over sin is a biblical solution. It's where it starts. Can I say that again? It's not just, hey, you, and just everything's happy, and you just take everything, Jesus. No, mourning over your sin is a good thing. Repentance means that I'm turning around. I'm not just staying on the same trajectory and then sprinkling a little Jesus forgiveness onto my life. It means that I'm turning the other way, and I'm actually going in a radically different direction. Are you getting that? I think that's sometimes something we miss. Mourning over sin. This was good. You can see the mourning in David. If you didn't, I'd be concerned, wouldn't you? After that, after those kinds of atrocities in his own life, and he goes, well, you know, boys will be boys, and Lord, I know you'll forgive me. Wash, my, wash me clean as snow, but it really wasn't that big of a deal. You could see the gravity. He knew, he understood the gravity of his own sin, and I think sometimes we fail to see the gravity of our sin, and so that's the purpose of the law, to show us the gravity of our sin. It doesn't just take someone who's you know, committed some horrible atrocity, Jesus made it clear, if you've even called your brother a fool, you're guilty of murder. So how do you deal with that? Well, they heard the law and they began to weep and mourn, but he had a solution. Notice Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. Nehemiah 8, verse 10. So then Ezra said, he said to them, go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Whose joy is it? It's the Lord's joy. And what makes you strong, even though you recognize that you're, that you're far from God? And yet now you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. So the starting point is to recognize our deficit but don't just stay in a place of depression and mourning. That's what religion will do to you. But that's what a lot of things will do to you. you just stuck there. And then God comes along and says, no, I'm going to cleanse you whiter than snow. I'm going to purify you with hyssop. It's my compassion. It's my joy. And then I'm going to insert my joy. Because when I insert my joy into you, that's going to be your strength. That's what's going to get you up, up in the morning. That's going, to what's going to, that's going to be what gets you through that lawsuit. That's what's going to get you through this marriage crisis. That's what's going to get you through this financial a struggle that you're going through. That's what's going to get you through this pain that you're suffering through. Maybe your kids denying the very existence of God. I'm going to give you joy in the midst of it, and it's going to be your strength. And if you lose your joy, you're going to lose your witness. So the very thing that you're trying to overcome, you're going to lose because you're not having my joy. So come to me, and I'm going to give you that kind of joy. John, Jesus said this very clearly in John chapter 15 as well. Notice, whose joy is it? John 15 verse 11 he says, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. In other words, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you will abide in me, if you'll be a worshipful person, if you'll be someone in the word, someone committed to community and fellowship, someone committed to the kingdom and not just get stuck out in the world where you're just, you know, putting a little Sunday morning dress on everything. If you'll get engaged, if you'll be intoxicated by the presence of my Holy Spirit, I'm going to give you my joy. Abide in me and the joy that I have, I'm going to give it to you. Is that powerful? I don't know. I don't like cookies. 
Did your, mom, did your mother ever give you cookies? No, she didn't bake. Well, maybe you've been around a situation where nobody was baking a cookie for you, but let me tell you something. It's right here in front of you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And then Acts 15, I, I, excuse me, Acts 13, verse 52. I love this. Let me tell you something. Uh, a disciple, first of all, what is a disciple? What is a disciple? Well, it's a learning pupil, someone who's following, trying to become like their teacher. They're actively involved in doing the will of the Father and constantly experience His joy. We can see it. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. There's a place at which obeying the voice of God will give you joy because that's what a disciple does. He's trying to learn to become like his creator. And that doesn't happen in a vacuum. You cannot come here, for instance, for just, you know, one hour on a Sunday morning and expect that to be all the infilling you need. They were continuously filled with God's joy. Why? Because they were engaged in the activities of the creator of the universe. They cared about what he cared about. They began to think like he thought. And it gave them joy. I can tell you when I, when I am engaged in thinking like God thinks, he gives me his joy. When I am engaged in obeying him step by step, moment by moment, and when I fail, I get right back up. A righteous man falls seven times and just gets back up again. And say, Lord, forgive me. I know I'm covered by your blood. Forgive me. I don't want to go down that road again. And you get back up and I get my joy back. How, many, how long has it been maybe? What kind of seasons? If you were to look back over your life, how long of a season would you stay? you stayed in where you lost your joy? Maybe you're in the middle of it right now. Maybe you say it's six months or a year or three years. And yet I've come to church and yet I just don't sense the joy of the Lord. Ask him this morning. Lord, I'm asking you for your joy Lord and then show me areas of my life that will be able to be turned show me areas that I can now obey you where I'm losing that same life that I used to have now what are some of the profound effects of joy let me tell you something they are good Psalm 149 verse 5 a clear indication that you're getting your groove back a clear indication catch this they will be singing when they go to sleep and when they wake up, let the godly ones, uh, Psalm 49, 5, let the godly ones exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. In other why on the bed? You ever thought about that? David talked a lot about that. I think, it, the, you know, when you're, when you're in bed, there's something about, and then the TV's off, right? There's something about being in bed where you're trying to go to sleep, and so you have a moment to just try to gather. And you can feel, if there's a toxicity in your life, you feel it. And then you can't sleep, right? But if there's something when you're trying to move off into dreamland and there's that moment, or when you wake up, same thing. Your, your thoughts are cleared. You kind of wake up. Those are moments. If the first instinct is to sing and praise the Lord, then can I tell you, you've gotten your groove back. Doesn't matter what the day brings, but if you wake up with praise and you go to bed giving all your issues over to Him and then end in praise... Let me tell you something, that's a clear effect of having gotten your joy back. Waking up and going to bed and thinking about your creator and knowing and living into his promises. You say, well, I don't have that, man. I haven't been able to sleep at all. I'm getting like two or three hours of sleep. I can barely, you know, I'm exhausted. And then, it, you know, do you see the snowball effect? That's what was happening to David. My vitality was being drained. 
And now you have this picture of, no, when I get his joy, his joy, oh boy, waking up is great. Can't wait to wake up. Can't wait to jump out of bed. Proverbs 17, verse 22. It's unbelievable medicine for your soul and your body. A joyful heart is good medicine. A broken spirit dries up the bones. That's what we saw in that little thing on depression. Depression leads to physical results. You can just be sure. But so does joy. Joy can lead to health. And, and I know many of you are probably thinking, well, you must not have enough joy because you're up there on crutches. Well, I'm just going to stay in joy until I get my health back. Uh, and if he never gives me this health back, then that's fine. I'll just, but I'm going to stay joyful. I am joyful. And it unplugs me from this wor world a little bit, right? It gives me a taste for what is to come. And then last, I want to close with this. Psalm 119, and I love it that it's verse 111. Talked to you a little bit a minute ago about Highway 111. What is, you know, Psalm 119, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. It's got many, many verses, well over 160 verses. And what you get here is verse 111 says this, I have inherited your testimonies. A duth in the Hebrew, which simply means your witness, simply what you say about reality. I've inherited them, and they are the joy of my heart. We say that again. I have inherited your, your witness or your testimonies or what you say about how life works, and they are the joy of my heart. When I think about the future, how can, that's one of my points. How can you think about... How can you be depressed for too long and sustainably if you're thinking about the kingdom of heaven and what awaits us who love him? Let me say that again. If you are riveted on the kingdom, which is both now, but not in its fullness, and also in the future after we leave this body, if you are riveted on that, how can you stay so depressed? I think it typically is where we flip those. We have a, an awareness of the future. We have kind of an indistinct picture of, you know, clouds and angels and, you know, never-ending worship songs. And we almost wonder if we'd even want to be there. And then we're very riveted on the world here. And then we wonder why we struggle. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and then God's going to work these other things out. He will give you a corresponding joy when we do that. It's one of the reasons you say, well, I got all the, I've read the Bible many times, and I've heard all these sermons, and I know all this stuff. But one of the reasons we come here is just to continuously remind each other. Isn't it great just to come and say, Doc, right, there will be a day when you have a perfectly healthy body? Nikki, right, when your body is alive and flourishing and there will be no more hobbling around, no more Achilles, no more, no more foot, no more heart issue, no more skin, no more eczema, no more, Lord, we're going to have that. We're going to have a resurrected body. We're going to live in a perfect community where everybody's thinking about others before themselves. Lord, that is coming. We're only down here for a short period of time. How can you not, if you live in that thinking how can you stay in a place of depression? There's only one way, and that is that I just don't think that God's forgiven me. Somehow I don't belong, or maybe I'm not even on my way to that community. 
it takes a daily reminder. What would it be like on Highway 111? What if we could go down to El Paseo? What do you think the vision of CRD is? Well, we just wanted to get together. No, the vision of Church at the Red Door is simple. We are a missional church. We want to see this family grow, not just for growth purposes, but we want to see people come into the kingdom and experience the word of God. Just like Bruce prayed for. It couldn't have been a better opening prayer. Lord, it is your word. It is your word that heals us. It is your testimonies. It's what you say about life. Lord, it's your, what you say about life is intoxicating. I've got to have it. And yet if you go down on El Paseo and people are walking up and down, they come from all over the world here, you know. People, if you were to go down to El Paseo and just start, well, just set up something down there and say, where are you from? Where are you from? Each person that walks by, you'd get Canadians, you'd get Europeans, you'd get people all over the U.S., you'd get people really from all over the world. Is it even possible that we could actually impact this valley, the Highway 111 corridor that, that runs all the way from Palm Springs all the way down to Mecca? Is there any way we could enliven that if we walk into our calling? We cannot give out what we do not possess. What environment has God put you in? Well, he's put you here or here for a period of time for many of our folks who aren't here right now. Do you have that kind of sustainable joy? Do you, have you gotten your joy back or have you lost it? Have you lost it? This valley's full of idolatry and people are disillusioned. You know why? Because Palm Springs tends to be a place where people finally culminate towards the end of their life. It's like the final aspiration. Like one day, honey, we'll be able to retire. Maybe we'll do RVing for a while. Maybe we'll do this. Maybe we'll do that. And somehow many, many thousands, 10,000 baby boomers retire every single day. And where do they come? They come here. Many of them. Not all, but many of them. Expecting to find something that now they've lost maybe a chance to get their joy back and then they realize well it can't be found even in the greatest one of the greatest weather spots in the entire world from november all the way through april man it doesn't get any better than this the wind doesn't blow very hard it's 75 degrees every day you get up crisp cool we all love it it's a beautiful place to be the mountains are so stark and 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 there's just there's beauty here and the restaurants and the this and it's just so wonderful why why have i still why am I still struggling? Taste and see. Taste and see. Will we be a church who is out there passing out the cookies? No, just please taste. Please taste. Will we, will we be an inviting church, a joyful church that has something to give? Or will we be a church that just says, well, you just ought to do the religious thing? So uh, two of my friends, Kelly and Kathy, told me about this song uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were together. Uh, it's a little lively, so I think we're going to need to stand up for this closing song. Uh, it's called Joy, and I could not think of a better song to end on. And it'll make you want to dance. It'll make you want to become a little Pentecostal this morning. <laughs> it might even, I might even throw my crutches down and start running around the stage here in a minute. Uh, it's called joy, and uh, I want us to close with this, and then I'll come back and close this in prayer. <laughs>